Welcome to the Marshall Proof Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. I'm doing this with a very improvised setup here in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Media Center. It is a Wednesday night, uh, I don't know, two days later than expected, 7.30 p.m. I have my microphone stuffed into its little carrying case, which I'm holding at a 45-degree angle. Uh, got my little roadcaster here, which is recording, and we have no ambient sounds because there were no cars on track today. These guys opened up. I was really appreciative because I needed to catch up on a ton of work, and I still have a ton more to do. But nonetheless, I do appreciate the unexpected break. So why don't we do this? Why don't we say thank you to y'all, as we always do, for the great questions you send in every week. We'll apologize for getting to this later than expected. Most of what you sent in was related to last weekend's Indy Grand Prix, but there is some Indy 500-related content. So uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if we're going to wait till next Monday to do the next episode or if we just might fire off a short Q&A here. I don't know, Friday, Saturday. Uh, let me know. Send me a little bit of feedback, at Marshall Pruitt on good old Twitter, I think Marshall.Pruitt on Instagram, reply to something there. If that's your one and only platform. And then there's a couple places to do so on Facebook. Uh, you know, I want to say a huge thank you as well to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, Kevin DeVries really kind of you to post here on Twitter today that you had to buy new tires for your truck and you chose Cooper to support the show and thank them for all they've done for me and for us over the last five years. So uh, truly could not ask for more. So thank you. And thanks to everybody who turned out last Friday for my first live MP podcast in a really long time. Pretty amazing lineup of guests, Elio Castroneves, Ari Leyendijk, and Pato Award. So we had some good fun there. Had a little quick Prude meetup afterwards ended out some gifts to y'all so uh, big thanks to everybody there and all of your supports just amazing got to meet more of you uh, today I'd already met Jason Hatfield but uh, got to meet the uh, the great gasoline alley ally so had an amazing gift for me uh, the unpolished turd uh, rope chain so I'm gonna sport that at the uh, yet to be determined date and time Indy 500 race day meetup. So anyways, just oodles of thanks to y'all. Uh, everybody that I bump into here seems to ask how my wife is doing and just wanted to share with y'all that she is doing incredibly well. I thought the being away was going to be nothing but a nervous event for myself. And thanks to her and thanks to a lot of prayers every morning, um, things have gone super well. She's actually been doing wonderful, uh, looking after herself. And I would say I'm doing okay looking after myself too. Alrighty. Let's dive right in here with your questions. Normally we go about an hour. I'll take a look here and see if we should shorten this up at all. Knowing that, uh, again, I'm a little bit late to the show and we've already gotten into Indy 500 practice. But let's go ahead and start covering off the GP here. Dan uh, Werderich, you say, MP, I have to admit, I didn't have 
Indy GP is a five to six stopper on my bingo card. I have a recommendation. Let's build sprinkler systems onto more racetracks from now on. The race was something else. A lot of y'all weighed in saying more or less the same thing. Uh, spoke with Roger Penske a couple days ago. Uh, he rang on Friday to raise some questions about the article or commentary I did about Miles Rowe. And although he hadn't read it, I think some folks in his camp maybe gave him some uh, a wrong take on what I wrote. So he was wanted to call to get that straightened out a little bit or figured out. And so in the midst of that conversation, talking about Miles, um, he mentioned he was going to meet with Miles and Augie Pabst, his USF 2000 team owner, uh, some point in time over the weekend. And he planned to, uh, I think Roger said, extend him through the end of the year. And so I said, great, great, great. Uh, obviously kept that to myself. And then learned on Monday, I think it was. Or was it yesterday? I don't even remember at this point. It's a blur. Uh, but learned that, yes, indeed, they did meet. Roger did do as he said he would. And Miles was all set for the rest of the year. So I rang RP to uh, get a little you know, confirmation and quote about that for the story. And in that conversation, he said, what did you think? What did you think of the Indy GP? And I told him, Pretty much along the same lines, Dan, as you've mentioned. I said uh, large, large uh, aircraft uh, filled full of water like we see used uh, in forest fires or whatever to drop water onto the blaze. I said you need to get a couple of those RP, at least two or three road courses per year. Just have them fly over during the race without any prior knowledge to anybody competing in the race and just douse the track. And that would be amazing. So uh, I love your thought here, Dan, but totally agree. Uh, As I wrote in my cool-down lap column on Racer, there are two things that tend to make a road and street course race super exciting. One is rain. The other is a lot of restarts. And when you put those two together, usually it's the rain causing the restarts, but when you put those two things together, it's almost guaranteed to be dynamite. So great stuff. Uh, Tony Barros, you say, Colton Herta, greatest save or greatest save ever? Uh, I don't know if I'd say an ever. That, for me, classification-wise, tends to be big oval territory. I know, I think it was a long time ago in the show I mentioned that the Dario Franchitis and Justin Wilsons of the world used to keep their in-car footage of the insane, oh my God, I don't know how I saved that moments from Indianapolis, Texas, Fontana, wherever it might have been. And it was just a constant case of one-upsmanship of, oh really, you think you did something special? Take a look at this. And, you know, the hit play on their phone or whatever it was, and ah, everyone freaks out. So I, I would say for a road course, street course kind of thing, for sure, Tony, this one's up there. I don't know what happened. Physics got the middle finger from Colton. Um, But, yeah, usually the greatest ever type stuff, reserve that for 200-plus miles an hour on an oval. But the kid might do it again. (laughs) We're not too far away. He might be able to do it again. Uh, Let's see. Why don't we go to a little bit of a longer question here from Reddit, BTX926. Uh, Mr. Pruitt, long-time listener, first-time questioner I love it. Thanks for sending it in. Also says the obligatory, hope your wife and cats are well. 
Um, it was a great race this weekend, and I'm convinced that Herta is the greatest American talent in recent memory. As much as I enjoyed the race, I continue to be confused by how sorting out the field under yellow is such a disaster. The cars do have electronic transponders. Great point. Can this be as simple as taking a snapshot of the standings when the yellow comes out, cycling the drivers you want to lap the pace car around, and telling everyone else who they're behind and telling them to get there in one yellow lap or face a black flag? We share similar questions about why this is such a time-consuming and befuddling practice. I'll just keep this super short. I would think it would be as simple and as easy as you have described. I have written stuff before where it took forever at whatever race to sort a jumbled field. Wrote like, what the hell? Come on now. So I have certainly weighed in on this in a very negative light before. But as I come to learn, sometimes the things that look like they should be very simple, uh, they're often extenuating circumstances or procedures that make that not the case. So although I've been a little yappy and barky in the past on this topic, I'm going to hold off on doing that here and hope that I get to connect with Jay Fry or race director Kyle Novak, maybe learn a little bit more about it. And who knows, maybe you and I are, and others are on the right track. And maybe we just don't know enough about this and there's a perfectly valid reason for it. Taking a while. Uh, Steve Bonek says, MP. I asked the Prude group, and there were some good answers, but I want to get your thoughts on Scotty McLaughlin's spin. What is the actual rule that says you can lose spots during a yellow? He says, because he couldn't pace the field due to the spin? Uh, two very significant situations, uh, different situations we're talking about here, Steve. If you are pole sitter leading the field uh, during the parade laps, the, uh, the pace laps before the race has started. I think in just about every form of racing, if there's an issue with the car, spins, engine dies for a second, whatever, uh, the race has not started. Most series, that person can regain their starting position and off they go. Again, not the case in every series, but most. This is a very different situation where the race was live, was active, and since positions on the track are now hot, competitive, and being tracked. Uh, hey, congratulations on being P1 coming into the restart. Oh, you just spun off and you're resuming P4, P12, whatever. Sorry. Uh, this is a active race, even if it's under caution. It's not red flag, but since we are in an active race and the positions of everybody count, uh, you don't get them back. And so wherever you fell to, that's where you restart. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to Willfla29 from Reddit. Marshall, there are obviously some complaints about visibility in the arrow screen at Indy. At least on TV, though, the front stretch looked very similar in terms of visibility to an F1 canceled spa in 2021. Is it possible that the problems were less the arrow screen and just truly horrible conditions? Uh, interesting one here. Most of the heavy complaints about vision problems were, as you mentioned here, restricted to the front straight and the end of the front straight in particular. Certainly, as Colton Herta mentioned after the race, 
remove the arrow screen, remove the halo, and we're going to have the same problem. So that would, I, I think, support your case. Um, and I'm positioning this for no known reason, like you're making a case. Where I think we have a, a big thing that needs to be differentiated, though, is even if this was a spot problem at one section of the track and very bad in that section of the track, the difference between a spa and a here is drivers in F1 would have the ability to try and clear their visors with their hand, with a towel, with a whatever. They, at least with the halo, have the ability to manage uh, whatever it is that is hitting their visor. If the spray and downpour is so heavy that the drivers are unable to successfully clear that away and their vision is taken away, then that's a reason to stop the race. If the cars are aquaplaning and you just cannot control them because the water is too deep and they're lifting up off the track and all that kind of stuff, another reason to stop the race. We did not have such an excess of water hitting the track that we needed to stop due to aquaplaning and the cars being uncontrollable. What we had was the uh, situation that my friend Sebastian Bourdais predicted and lit up IndyCar <laughs> social media about in response to my story on Twitter. Uh, and so I kind of got roped into that. Thank you, Bourdais. Spoke to him about that yesterday. Called him all kinds of curse words jokingly. Um, drivers can wipe their visors all they want behind an arrow screen, but it's not going to do a darn thing. It's the arrow screen itself getting hit by water, dirt, spray, whatever. Um, at that excessive point, that excessive amount that was referenced by a number of drivers where they had no control over that. So vehicles weren't in danger of leaving the circuit due to rain, but they could not manage, could not improve their vision uh, because they have no mechanism to do so. Uh, they can't reach far enough to do it by hand. And there's nothing in front of the arrow screen like windshield wipers that Simon Pagano recommended to assist. So that's where we just have this very weird and different thing of, okay, so if this can be an issue, since we've just seen it can be an issue, IndyCar needs to step up its uh, tools for drivers to manage this worst case problem as it's been found, because it'll happen again. And maybe there are other issues that are unknown if the conditions are even harsher and yet raceable. Who knows? But, yeah, a little bit different here just in the fact that, yeah, drivers could not clear the screen, and the screens for many uh, got to be so bad that, again, uh, Connor Daly mentioned having to look out of the sides of the arrow screen to try and spot where to break, where to do many things. Um, yeah, that's not what we want. Brian Cohn, you're next, asking why Jack Harvey wasn't given a penalty for a low-percentage move uh, that required the cars he was trying to pass to get out of his way for it to be successful. Um, I'll just say this. Why weren't there 100 penalties in that race? I don't know. Uh, there was a lot of, oh, that's normally not allowed, and yet you did it. So... 
I don't know the specifics behind Harvey and non-calls. I would just say that that seemed to fit the trend for the day. Um, and also thanks for the kind note about uh, Shabrell, my wife, and, uh, and everything. Uh, Ricky Zagate says, hey, MP, the crowd for the GP looked up compared to recent years. How did it feel being there? It felt up despite the rain, despite everyone having to uh, run away, fear of, of lightning strikes and whatnot. It did feel up. It felt like there were more people uh, in the walks that I tend to do going back and forth from the media center to Gasoline Alley. Uh, it did feel more dense, and I can't tell you what it looked like uh, out on the corners and such so much because I did not venture out there uh, on race day. But, yeah, it looked good, felt good, and there was a bit of a buzz coming out of the race in a way that I don't really recall in previous Indy GPs, Ricky. So normally the GP is something to get out of the way, give teams a chance to get loaded in, get warmed up a little bit, but then get down to the real reason we are here. Of course, it'll always be the real reason, the Indy 500. That's not going to change, but honestly, the GP... For all of them that I've been to, was there from the first through 2019. Uh, this is the first time I can say it feels like there's a, a momentum uh, connecting the GP to the 500. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, why don't we go to Eric Franklin, says, MP? Glad you're back in Indy for May. Says it was just me, or did it seem the entire field was giving no quarter to Romain Groschon at the GP? says, I will admit I loved his aggressiveness at Road America last year, but there is a limit to what the other drivers are going to take. had a very interesting conversation with a IndyCar driver today on this topic, uh, which they raised. And I, again, I, just, I found it interesting that this was something that stood out to them that they wanted to talk about. And they mentioned that, you know what, this highly aggressive, over-aggressive Romain Groschamp that we're seeing a little bit more of here in IndyCar, uh, they recalled seeing that in his GP2 days, and that really standing out as, oh boy, uh, he drives rather ruthlessly at times. And I, he did that maybe a tiny bit in F1, but F1 cars are not built to take uh, rough housing, so not so much there, but just interesting for them to see the connection and go yeah actually i haven't seen this as much um for a little while but this was really prevalent uh when he was you know at the european equivalent of indie lights so i think we are going to see more drivers treating romain in a so that's how you want to play type mode the majority of the IndyCar drivers are wanting to and willing to play each other fairly and to leave one another intact. I would also say that they are very quick to react to someone who they feel is not upholding those standards. And so... That's not a, a dire thing for Roma. That's not a warning for him. But it is a, okay, <laughs> if you don't want to adjust to the way we do things, which is not necessarily a dialing down. 
but it is a let's treat this a little bit more like a brother and sisterhood instead of 26 assassins uh, you get somebody thinking like they're an assassin these cars can take a hit so if we think about jack harvey for example as i wrote i think he made wheel to wheel side to side contact with him three to four times in one corner uh which then led romain uh get sent off into the grass every driver in the field can do that and the sooner that he acknowledges that the sooner that he accepts that i think the easier his life will become there's no doubt how fast he is or how capable he is but if you want to be the villain and i don't mean for the fans and playing up a wwe type thing but just if you want to be a villain among uh, your fellow drivers they have the ability to pay you back i don't know if what happened between him and jack fell into that category in any way i would just say that i hope roman's takeaway uh from that exchange was ah yeah uh i could be in the grass a whole bunch if i don't tune myself to the wavelength of indycar uh why don't we go to Greg Fetchick asking, why is everybody so down on the road course, Indy road course? I don't know. Uh, they just are. Granted, if it had been dry and hot on Saturday, I don't know if we're having a lot of great, amazing things to talk about. So who knows? Let's go to Jake Rose. It says, AMP, not a question. I think I just said AMP instead of hey, AMP. So AMP. Not a question, but an observation. This was lucky enough to share a suite for the Indy GP with the NXG racers and their families. So it brought a smile to my face to see so many young black people who are historically underrepresented in motorsport. Got a little extra love last weekend. Said seeing the kids go absolutely nuts over the cars and drivers. It's truly one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my 30 years of going to IMS. We have to keep this passion growing somehow. What are the best ways to help this program grow? Totally agree. Was very fortunate to be down for the NXG, uh, the end of the NXG race on Saturday. See the kids, see how much it meant to them, their families as well. This is probably a massive overstatement but having spent the majority of my life in at least half or significantly black culture everywhere that i go in motor racing my eyes are out and looking for black folk and just to get a feel for representation uh, how many how many not whatever it might be but there's always a little bit of a spidey sense of like hey is there something maybe hopefully and to your exact point jake it was awesome on saturday to see so many black folk here uh young old in between kids true young young kids to you know more grown children and whatnot the the, the boys and girls who were racing in the nxg karting event um just beautiful and so how do we grow this how do we make this bigger and better uh, 
I would say it all stems back or comes back to my hope that the uh, NXG program can reach wider than Indianapolis. I know that there's going to be some carting and exhibitions and whatnot at the Detroit Grand Prix here in a couple of weeks with NXG. So again, these are great things. But I think as I have mentioned, and I'm sure others have mentioned as well, hey, IndyCar, you open your season in St. Petersburg, Florida, greater Tampa Metro. Be pretty amazing to have NXG event there with kids, local kids, um, participating and all kinds of cool education-based things, STEM, aptitudes relating to motorsports, science, you name it. Like, hey, all the really cool things that NXG does. This is created by Rod Reed, a person who also heads the Force Indy, a race for quality and change. Indy Lights program, scaling NXG up so it is a traveling component with IndyCar. I don't know if it's at every race, but at the majority. And something where, again, you're not just bringing around the same kids from Indianapolis doing races everywhere, but engaging locally and trying to develop talent locally. And who knows if it's races. Maybe, you know, there's set number of races per year, but maybe a lot of this is uh, training, education, first time. Come on out. Try and drive a cart. Maybe you'll like it. Bring your kids. We'll teach you, right? You bring your kids to the golf course for the first time, there's probably going to be some uh, smart folks telling them how to swing and hit the ball and do this, that, and the name whatever other sport where you go, hey, coaching is, is a big part of development and growth. Well, in our sport, it's a little weird. Uh, it's definitely weird. It involves motorized vehicles, but same concept. Hey, you ever wanted to? Come on out. We're going to be here. We're going to have a bunch of carts. We're going to have a bunch of, of educators who can help your daughter, help your son, uh, see if they like this. And if so, maybe uh, that'll be something for them to explore and continue exploring as a family uh, going forward. So that's my that's my little thought here, Jake. Let's see. Where else do we go here? Uh, B. Johnson 203. MP, what are your opinions on the willpower pole record pursuit? How big would it be for Power's legacy to be the all-time pole winner in IndyCar history? I think he's going to have that distinction, whether officially, right, whether he actually claims the record uh, from Mario Andretti or not. Uh, I think just because he's decades more current i think folks are just going to naturally associate him with being you know one of the two fastest uh, indycar drivers ever in terms of pole positions legacy if he gets it i think that's true it'll be amazing that'll be a wonderful thing to be in the record book and he will tell you that it has meaning and he holds that dear to him if he could trade all of the 64, 65, whatever the number is now, polls for another championship, two championships, uh, I bet you he would do it in an instant because being the all-time poll winner but a one-time champion, um, I know he's won the Indy 500. I know how much that means to him, but Will is wired really towards demonstrating excellence 
the value of that demonstration being in a season-long championship structure. So uh, having come up short, come up second, uh, third, you know, many times, just saying uh, he'll love it. Doesn't necessarily land with folks like the all-time winner. <laughs> you have more wins than anybody. Like that's a thing where you go, wow. Um, if I come back to my favorite stick and ball sport of basketball, uh, the all-time scoring leader has an amazing ring to it. All-time leader in assists, all-time leader in rebounds. Eh, it's great. It's amazing. It's not anything close to the top one. So, uh, yeah, I'm serious. I bet you he'd trade all those for one or two more championships <clears throat> as I get a little bit verklempt. Let's see, where do we go here? Uh, Matt Philpot, MP, the forecast looks like there may be a day or two of rain during practice this week. You can tell the future, Matt. Uh, who is hurt most by a washed-out or shortened practice day? A rookie in their first 500 or a one-off driver who may be turning their first IndyCar lap since a year ago? Uh, that's an interesting one. With how things worked out yesterday and everybody getting pretty decent number of laps... I don't really think today's rain out is going to hurt folks on either end, either uh, situation, either the full-timers or uh, the rookies and such. I think we're going to be just fine. The The thing that I heard from a lot of folks, separate from myself, who wanted a day of rain to get caught up, was there's a number of, of team managers that I spoke with, drivers and whatnot, who are all of the same opinion. Like, yeah, I know we only did one day, but like actually having a day off, quote, day off, uh, to get caught up on some things, maybe send the crews home a little bit early. That was all regarded as a good thing. Uh, let's see. Andrew Brumfield says, why do the teams get so much more practice for the 500 than they do for any other event? Don't get me wrong. I watch every single lap. Just curious as to why. Probably telling you things you already know, Andrew, but compared to back in the day, uh, I mean, my first Indy 500, we had two weeks of practice, like hardcore practice, uh, two weekends of qualifying. Just you could run all day and all night forever. Uh, and so for what we have now, it's actually cut down quite a bit. Um, as for why, I could give you a bunch of reasons. Let me give you the one that I would say is the most meaningful to the teams in terms of reasoning. Since we do not know what race day weather is going to be like, uh, the more days of practice teams get, the more studied they are, the more setup information they have to log and then refer to when we get closer to the race. Let's say race day is 80 degrees and slightly, but slightly overcast. They're going to be looking back and hopefully finding on a Thursday, the, the two-hour session on Monday after qualifying, whatever it might be. Hey, okay, it might not have been perfectly matched, but it was 83 degrees and somewhat overcast. That's, it's a great starting point compared to when we were running on another day where it was 68 degrees, comparatively cool, and the air was thin as can be, uh, skies perfectly blue, whatever, whatever, whatever. So knowing how fast 
they're going, knowing how knife edge things can be. I always look at the volume of practice as something where, well, there are, we used to do a lot more of it. This is indeed giving teams a lot of different ambient circumstances to run through and log. And so we know what time to go out if we want to make maximum speed. Tends to be the end of day happy hour, yada, yada, yada. We know all those things. But again, it is really trying to build up your annual playbook so that when you do get to race day, you have a, uh, a chassis setup that is hopefully something that's been vetted, run, proven to be good, that you can refer back to and hopefully make speed with. So there you go. Uh, why don't we hit a little bit of, uh, actually, I don't even think we need to hit the, the throttle here. I think we're getting fairly close to the end. Uh, Nate from Twitter, at Smoot. <laughs> Who's your pre-practice favorite? Dark, ho- dark Hose? I was about to say Dark Ho. I don't know what's going on here. I did have a beer today, by the way. That was really good. Uh, Dragon's Milk, Yum. Um, let me try that again with your pre-practice. I can't even get this right. It's just a a really simple sentence too. Who is your pre-practice favorite and dark horse pole winner for the 500? I'm not sure on the pre-practice part. As I say, a lot of words that start with the letter P there, Nate. Let's just go for pole winner right now. Uh, I'm going to put my not money on Jimmy Johnson. So there you go. Uh, and we'll talk about next week, I don't know, race uh, picks, who's going to win, something that we always do, even though we can never predict it. Uh, Tracy, our pal, she says, hope you're well. No question, just putting a bug in your ear about getting the uh, rookie intro animal answers so she can do some of her uh, photo mashups for us. Uh, I will add that to the list here. Tracy, as I try to do that while holding the mic with one hand, but I'm writing down Tracy, and hopefully that will jog my brain. Uh, Ed Roberts, given the new Indy 500 qualifying format, uh, is there any concern that teams are making the Fast 6 qualifying session and they won't have ample time to fully cool their cars before they run for the pole? Uh, especially if, if they run late in the Fast 12 session. So best to you and your rock star wife. So 8.06 p.m. now on a Wednesday night, I think tomorrow morning at 7.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, you will read a story that I have wrote that answers that question and hopefully answers it ably. So definitely concerns. I had one driver who certainly would be contending for pole tell me a lot of things privately, very serious concerns about uh, not having ample cooling uh, time between runs. This was a week ago, maybe. Um, I learned about this qualifying plan about a week ago and was asked to sit on it, so I have. And so I think that driver's concerns, while they might not be 100% erased, I do think uh, that driver and the others will be pretty happy. All right, what are we down to here? Two to go. Oh, we're going to close the show with uh, an awesome member of the Prue Day. 
Uh, and we're going to do the penultimate one with a meh, decent member of the Prue Day. Kidding. Joey Tebbin says the, uh, quote, Dragon Force entry for Stefan Wilson has a number 25, which wasn't really out of sports number for the past couple of years. Do teams usually have to pay another team to lease their numbers for one-offs, or did Andretti just likely loan it out? I think I mentioned in the uh, the racer mailbag maybe last week. I don't know. Um, IndyCar uh, owns all those numbers. Now, if we're talking truly embedded numbers, A.J. Foyt and the number 14, yeah. The, no one else is going to take that off of Foyt. Scott Dixon and the 9, same kind of thing. Will Power and 12. Uh, long established. Each year, teams do have to submit their request for a car number, and IndyCar has to approve it. Same for the Indy 500. Um, so, again, although there's a little bit of a nothing more than ceremonial yay or nay with some of the long-held numbers, Joey, uh, for something like the 25, which has really been an Indy-only thing, something that Stefan's had, uh, this would have gone unused by the team since they did not enter a sixth car. Uh, they obviously did the Andretti team last year using that 25 for him. So that was up, open, and free. And they done got it despite filing an entry. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just kind of sort of right before we got here. So luckily enough, no one else grabbed it. Uh, we are going to close the show with our pal, The at mama underscore g-force from the twitters her name cassie johnston worldwide cassie that's what we're calling her massive influence uh with all the good stuff that she does she says hey mp the gp was a blast but my brain is already on the greatest spectacle in racing she says my seven-year-old daughter is going to her first indy 500 this year and seeing her anticipation grow makes me want to hear about other folks' first Indy 500 experiences. What was your first race day like? Oh, Cassie, that is really sweet of you to uh, send in here for a closing question. The year was 1997. Yeah, see, back when the world was black and white, see. Uh, it was 1997. And I had never been here before for anything. So uh, coming in for, I know you asked race day, just give a little bit of a lead up here to uh, give a little context. First time here was for the Indy Open test. I seem to recall it being somewhere towards the end of April, which is kind of the normal time frame for it. And myself and Ed Nelson, who was a veteran of IndyCar, who was with us with our Genoa Racing Indy Lights team. I had never been in IndyCar. I had just been working up the uh, the road to Indy um, or working in the road to Indy as a mechanic and engineering type. Um, he and I, he had never been here as well because this was the Indy Racing League era of the 500. And Ed had worked for uh, PPI, Calwells and such uh, in the kart series. And so because of the split and the timing of PPI coming into cart, missed being here. And so he and I both walked out, uh, walked through Gasoline Alley. We basically just got into Gasoline Alley in our little rental van. Uh, most people went straight to the tractor trailer to open the doors and start to unload the car and the equipment. 
Ed and I decided uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to take a moment for ourselves, uh, walk down Gasoline Alley and out to Pit Lane. Uh, it was closed, the fence, you know, there was fencing then barring us from walking on to Pit Lane, but there was a yellow shirt there who was nice enough to let us just stand there and gaze. And it was insane, Cassie. Just the sheer size from the inside with nobody there. And that was the really cool part. The fact that this wasn't people and noise and other things to distract our attention. It was dead silent, just looking out onto the front stretch, in particular turning our heads right and looking back up towards turn four, how it was 20 miles away, it seemed like the massive expanse of seating, uh, just everything. It, it was something that I dreamt about forever in my Carlmont High School uh, yearbook in my senior will. Uh, I wrote, look for me at Indy in 10 years. And so that was 1988 when I graduated and I happened to beat that by a year, uh, got there in nine and there's just something that that feeling with ed dead silent all to ourselves was a really beautiful private moment so fast forward to race day and for those of you who remember the 97 race or have heard about it there were multiple race days <laughs> there wasn't just one there were three because rain 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 and so at least walking out for the first time on the grid, in my fire suit, uh, doing work and whatnot on the car, but standing there with our team co-owner, Angelo Farrow, who'd been there before, had had some entries in the past, uh, but just standing there with him. And this is a guy who'd seen everything, had all these amazing experiences in motor racing, had been to the 500 before with, with cars he was involved with, but to stand next to Angelo and see how big of an impact being on the uh, front straight at the Indy 500 pre-grid, how much of an impact it had on him, that registered with me, Cassie. Like, wow, if this place is hitting him that hard, what, what is this, how is this hitting me? I couldn't fully process it. This wasn't something that in the moment I was able to fully grasp and feel. And with a race to run, and this is, you know, I would say maybe the unfortunate part for uh, myself and, and the uh, men and women working on pit lane, um, that's the operative word, working. And so it's a little bit different from going to a giant concert where you are a fan and you're getting to see this huge spectacle and the sights and the sounds are amazing and you love it and you soak it in and you build all these memories. I gotta think that for the bands, not that they don't enjoy it and it isn't great, but they're working. <laughs> and so they're maybe not in that moment capturing things at as high a frequency. And so that's really what it was like for me. So I don't this isn't meant to be a wah, wah, wah kind of thing. It's not at all. But seeing Angelo and how struck he was, that was amazing. The rest of us, we barely felt like we belonged. 
because we, for most of us, had never worked in IndyCar. Uh, we were an Indy Lights team. We'd been quick, but we didn't qualify well, blah, blah, blah. Like, we felt, honestly, we felt a little bit lucky. Like, we kind of stumbled into this thing, and all of a sudden, we're on the front straight, and there's whatever, hundreds of thousands of people getting ready for this greatest spectacle that I dreamt of being at and was there. And I tried to soak it in. The thing I remember more than anything was there was uh, lots of cloud covers. I mentioned the rain was going to be coming. But, uh, that day, they what was it? I think a B-2 stealth bomber was uh, the thing they arranged to fly over. And so we were standing. I think the national anthem was playing or something along those lines. And we were all lined up. We happened to be looking back towards turn four and just see clouds, but then something descends, this, this boomerang-shaped thing descends from the clouds, felt like it was flying right on the deck overhead. Not silent, but almost silent, it seemed. And came. it was like an alien ship, Cassie. And with all the sensory overload but still having to work and stay engaged and not freak out and realize you're there to do a job and you've got to be good at it and stay locked in. But trying to soak these things in, turning around and seeing and the effing stealth bomber, this giant, massive outer space vehicle, uh, that's the thing that kind of got me. Like, holy shit, this is the Indy 500. This isn't going to happen anywhere else. This is like, that's when things hit me, and I was blown away. That's when finally I kind of let everything in that I was trying to keep out. And knowing me, I probably cried a little bit. There was probably some tears involved, but those were tears of amazement and joy. And from there, it was trying to contain the uh, seven-year-old inside of me who was just freaking out at the place he always dreamt of being, uh, but being there and in the show and part of the show. And, oh, that was nuts. Then we went racing, and then the motor broke, and we didn't get to race for very long, and it kind of bummed us out. But altogether, all of the things, Cassie, that folks tell you, that you hear from drivers about, you know, I'll be – coming back trying to qualify until I'm 100 years old. It's the greatest feeling ever. There's nothing else like it. Any other track, any other anything. I mean, I've, I've never driven around here. I've never done a lap in the tour bus, any of that. But just from being part of the show on pit lane in Gasoline Alley for five years in a row or whatever it was before I, quote, retired. Um, life-sustaining. And I'm one of thousands upon thousands of people to have done this exact thing at the Indy 500 over the last 106 races, 105, about to be 106. I am the smallest blip and the least significant blip of all the talented men and women who have done this. I can also tell you that inside of me is the feeling of luck and gratitude and I got to do something that so few others on earth have had a chance to do. 
and the feelings and the memories that it generated are unlike anything you could imagine. Being inside, being part of it, having a direct hand on vehicle speed or team performance or all the various areas uh, connected to working for a racing team. Um, Wow. So the next year where we qualified second and led for the first, I think, 18 laps, um, I think I just pooped myself the whole time. So that's a story for another day. But y'all really appreciate you, like truly appreciate you. Um, I am so ridiculously fortunate to do what I do. It's the thing that I love, and folks pay me to do that, and I am able to support my family by doing this. And y'all make this possible because we have partners who've wanted to join in and help us to make a living. And this is all interconnected. And so thank you. Thank you and thank you. So let me know if you want uh, to do a show here in a couple days, a quick little Q&A, something. I don't know. Um, let me know. Hit me on the good old social medias. Uh, my hashtag racing family partner, Chris Wheeler, I know we are way overdue uh, in doing a show this week. So who knows? Maybe that's the thing. Maybe we can do that tomorrow night, Thursday night. Uh, who knows? Or maybe Friday night would be best. Coming out of Fast Friday, we will certainly get a glimpse. For uh, Is Chevy there? Is Honda there? Or are we fortunate and have both looking like they're on equal footing? And who knows who's going to come out on top? So Maybe a Friday night a hashtag racing family show will be the jam. And then, who knows, maybe we'll do another one Sunday night after the poll is set. I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll figure that out. But <sighs> speak to y'all here super soon.